now the CEO of Hill House Home and, and founder of Hill House Home has twins. I have twins. They're about eight weeks apart. Hers are in October and mine are born on New Year's Eve. And we did the Series A between um, her <laughs> her twins and my twins. So it's really- Whoa, she led the round between her twins being yes. born and your twins being born. Her, her term she got to her- So you two women are, are crazy people. Crazy people. I was like <laughs> trying to give her time and then I realized that my twins were going to come sooner than we thought. So and you had to, so you yeah, had to get a term sheet out. We got her the term sheet. I was on the way to the hospital. How does someone build a billion dollar operationally intense healthcare company, be the first investor in a popular nap dress company and create a giant consumer brand? Let's find out from Kimmy. Really excited to have my friend and HVC business partner, Kimmy Scotty, here with me today. Kimmy, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Kimmy, you wear a lot of hats, but you identify most as a maker, uh, someone who builds things, someone who creates things. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your background. When, when did you first start making things? Mm-hmm. So if you, you know... If you go all the way back, I think at my, at the earliest stage, I was like six years old and I made my grandmother a necklace and she wanted it two inches longer. And so I calculated the cost of the beads and I charged her for the extra two inches. So that's (laughs) my first transaction as a business person. But I started my first company in high school at 15 and it took it, it took me all the way through college. So I actually built that for seven years. What was that company? That was a jewelry brand. It was called Mims New York and it sold even at Bloomingdale. So I was in school at FIT. So I went to fashion school here in New York City. Um, I actually sold it into both um, New York Bloomingdale's locations. And it was on things like the Hit Show Project Runway. And I had a really good time building, you know, building this company because it was like, you know, really at my core, I really like to make things with my hands. And so now I built a lot of, a lot of different things, but at that early stage, it was like something at 15, I could really make sense of easily, right? The retail math is really simple. And so it's a great business to cut your teeth on. I think of you as someone who's a creative builder. You're also a very strong leader. You're you're a fierce person as well, if I may say, (laughs) friendly, but fierce. Your family's Italian, your father was I think, very senior in the Teamsters, which mm-hmm. yeah, which is which is not necessarily seen as entrepreneurial. Obviously, mm-hmm. like like where did this entrepreneurial energy come from? Where did where did you get this drive to build? Yeah, so that's such a good question because I love to look at you know around sort of my family and my own like leadership you know or you know around me growing up and try to figure out you're like oh where where does this make a lot of sense because you're right it's not you know I didn't look around and see a lot of entrepreneurial behavior when I think about my mom and I was just having this conversation with her recently um, you know sh- she's an Italian immigrant you know she's born in Southern Italy moved here as a child and you know she'll she'll talk to me even now about struggling to put food on the table for me and my sister um, when you know when we were growing up and then later for my two stepbrothers as well and I'm so lucky to be raising my kids in like such complete privilege right I never think about you know putting food on the table for them but she was very entrepreneurial she would hack together little business schemes go to a market buy a bunch of kids tapes then go to the flea market and sell them and oh, so, so it she, really would come from your mom a lot yeah then. I would see her create the you know create these little dynamics she opened a, to create opportunity for herself. She opened a little boutique in, inside of a, a local hair salon, things like that. She was always selling something. So out of necessity, she did this Correct. and then you, you kind of kind of yeah. picked that up and learned I wa- from her. I watched it my whole, I watched her do it my whole life. And she would just like hack together these, you know, these quick businesses to, you know, to really you know, support us. 
So let's talk about the first really big company you were involved in creating, yeah. Script Relief. Yes. So what, what was that company? So Script Relief lowered the cost of prescription medications for the on and underinsured. And so basically, it looked at the PBM industry, pharmacy benefit management industry, um, which actually a lot of people don't realize is who is um, negotiating and delivering your pharmacy benefits through your insurer. So most people don't realize when they flip their insurance card over, it's like um, you're it has numbers about your about doctors and care, and then it has a separate set of information about your pharmacy benefits. And that's because it's actually processed by an entirely different company that your insurer has actually partnered with to deliver those um, benefits to you. And what we did was actually negotiate those discounts on your prescription drugs on behalf of the underinsured population in the country, of which there, are, you know, there's so many under. So you get a better deal for all these people, correct? And then you had to market to them aggressively to get them to take the deal, exactly. And 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 also, we were actually giving them this product for free. So we would deliver this pharmacy discount card to them for free. They would just take it to their pharmacy with their prescription. So you send out like how many like. Even a hundred million packages a year in in some years, and so really a, a high number of direct mail packages. Um, we used to joke that we could just dump them out of planes. What, what, uh, what were some of the tricks you learned to reach these people? Uh, Oh my gosh, this is actually, it's kind of my favorite exercise. And it's something I love to talk to our founders about because founders, like, you know, we, we that we work with, they love data. And a lot of times what they're looking at is like big sweeping information, right? The, the really loud pieces of information that they hear from their customer base. And actually where a lot of, I think the best marketing tactics come from is the more quiet whispers. And then you can kind of follow those, you know, follow what those data What does that mean? Points. What's a quiet whisper? So... A good example of when we were building Script Relief is that we would we would market to you. You were looking for a population that was on a lot of medications, right? So somebody who needed to fill a lot of medications that weren't insured. So a particular income and then a particular ailment. So take for example, um, individuals who made uh, less than sixty thousand dollars a year who were diabetics. Okay. I can buy profiles, right? We are, we're all familiar with our data being sold, right? I can buy profiles of people who identify this way. My household income is here and I have this particular ailment. Or I can look for them in sneakier, more interesting, complex ways. Um, I'm buying, uh, I'm a person who buys food-related um, gadgets from the television at two in the morning. That's a, that's a much more interesting way to get to that same population. And it's an active customer. This is a person who has taken out a credit card, who's made a phone call. So you figure out the correlations that tie Correct. to these things. Yes. And so what is the, what's basically, I would say, I would, and I would say to our founders even now, what's the weirdest way you can get to your exact customer? And that's probably also the most cost effective. Of course, you'd be creative. And it's cost effective because if it's weird, a lot of people aren't doing it. Correct. If, you, if, if you're just looking for a diabetic yeah. that makes under $60,000 a year, that's a list you can buy. They're very, very expensive. If you're just doing it on Google or Facebook at this point, yes. there's probably everyone else doing that too. Exactly. So exactly. And so, but if you can figure out unique ways to get to that same person and I like, I'm, I always think there's a way and a cost to get to every single one of your customers. You just have to figure out what the most cost effective path is to each individual customer. So how big does script relief get as a business? It's over a hundred million a year in, in profit. And as a small team, um, only 28 employees at the time and it's a brilliant team of marketers basically all marketers. And we did something really unique. We paired really young, high IQ team with 
super genius old school marketing talent. And so guys who had been in the business of direct mail for the, like the previous 20, 30 years, um, partnered with a amazing girl, you know, math student from Harvard. I love that. So get really smart mm-hmm. people with new ideas and then people who are experienced and exactly. can kind of help. So yeah, that, that's a combination we use a lot as a, the top, the top, the top talent who's younger, who's like dynamic, creating new things and people who know how it works. It's also a lot of, uh, I think a lot related to the thesis really, um, you wrote around smart enterprise. How do you use the data from these incumbent businesses and partner with them and then partner them with young gun companies who are employing the, you you know, most modern technologies and building the most modern technologies to, to work together. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about the PBM industry in general. Cause you, you later ended up helping a lot when, when the, when the Chaken brothers started Blink Health and we were early investors there. And like, so, so what's wrong with the PBM industry? Like, Mm -hmm. like, like what is it again? And, and, And then what needs to be fixed there? Yeah, actually, I think the PBM space is like a perfect example of something that needed, like needs and needed disrupting. And what I think is most interesting about this space is, you know, we we're so lucky we get to talk to a lot of the smartest minds, right? Right, in investing in uh, entrepreneurs, et cetera, right? And it's rare to find uh, in this group that they don't know about something. And the amount of times that we've had to explain or speak to amazing top investors, like market maker investors, about explaining what the PBM industry just the is, basics of it's, this. Wi- it's and this, wild. This is a giant industry, right? I think I think it's there's I think there's three Fortune 20 companies, yes. so three of the biggest companies in our country. In the world, yeah. Are in there. It's a form of a middleman between kind of the pharmaceutical companies and, and, the and, insurers. and insurers. Yeah, and, exactly. And, everyone else who and buys employers, it. I guess, exactly. Yeah. Um, kind of triangulating. So pharmacy benefit managers literally are exactly that. They negotiate pricing on behalf of a particular population with the pharmaceutical companies on behalf of the insurers. And then the insurers basically farm out this entire area of and negotiation. Why do they make so much money? It seems like it's like you don't want middlemen making this much money. Like what's going on? Exa- that's exactly right. That's And that's what's broken, right? You look at these companies and you're like, this is literally a middleman negotiator between these two things. And they, listen, they say they do a lot of things. They say they do safety checks. They say they do, you know, they do all of these different things um, to sort of support support the the expense but it's really but not very it's profitable really not yeah, sitting in the middle wildly profitable and also what? they're super bloated they've tens of thousands of employees these companies and what what are some of their moats like like why is it why why is it hard not to just build them and replace them because they're making so much profit because in yeah. capitalism and markets something's making too much money for doing something doesn't seem that hard we should build a competitor right so what are the moats why is it hard so I think there, it's actually, I think the moat is getting, is getting worse, not better in the consolidation of healthcare, right? So this, this mass consolidation we're seeing across American healthcare, where you're seeing insurers align to, to pharmacy benefit managers and even pharmacies. So if you look at like CVS, right? It's like CVS, CVS Caremark is their PBM, you know, and, and now, and now Aetna. So you've got this real alignment that actually is not great, I think, for the American healthcare consumer, mm. um, and really needs to be disrupted. It's kind of, Wild that the government lets so this happen. So CVS, which which is has a touch point with all these stores everywhere. Correct. They actually own the PBM that's making all the money. So so it's that's that's full alignment. Yeah. Very profitable for them. Amazingly profitable. Yeah. So, so it'd be is, very hard to compete with that with their yeah. PBM as an example. How, how about others? Are there other there are other areas? And also, I'll get. I actually think this is a really interesting. Um, there's a really interesting point about this, which is 
all the time you hear Americans, you know, close to you walking around complaining about big pharma. And you, what you hear them complaining about is big pharma. What they're actually complaining about that they don't know is big PBM and big pharmacy. It's like yeah. how much, how many dollars are actually flowing profit wise into, into CVS, into Walgreens, those guys versus the guys who exactly. are, who are owning and investing and the in the P- drugs. Exactly. And the PBM. And, and so these, that's who's like actually setting, setting pricing, setting list pricing and, and all of that. And so I think that the, um, you know, the American healthcare consumer is like really confused about who they're mad at because you would they don't even know the PBM exists. This, this, to is, be the, mad this at is a confusing it. industry. Correct. It's like there's like there's the biotech companies and there's pharma, which are kind of like biotech companies, but they're much more like private equity guys sometimes because yeah, they're just buying, acquiring drugs, acquiring yeah. stuff, and, and taking in there. And then there's the there's the PBMs, there's the pharmacies, there's the health systems, there's the insurance companies. A lot of people to be mad at. <laughs> I do this like for a living, and I could barely keep track of, of all of this. This is what I'm saying. Yeah. We talk to the smartest, brightest minds, right? And then we're trying to explain to them this business that's obviously scaling, you know, amazingly. And they're like, and what does it do? You know, and you have to re-explain them this whole industry. So it's it really seems like there's, there's hundreds of billions of dollars of unnecessary kind of minimum expense going on yeah, in this area in the system. Uh, without, we probably can't explain everything Blink Health does because yes. it's so complicated. Yeah. What, but this has been one of your big investments from the very early on. It's, yeah. it's a, it's now value. It's now a unicorn growing yeah. really fast. Like tell us a little bit about Blink Health. So I'm obsessed with this business. Obviously, I've been obsessed with the problem for a long time. And, you know, I think had we not had the prior experience understanding the PBM space, we probably would have never really understood the business well enough to invest in the first place. And so what they're actually doing is providing pharmacies that are outside of sort of the big the big few that we all kind of think of as a, a sort of an American healthcare front door, um, with the, the types of loyalty program and services, um, that so there's a long tail of pharmacies. Yes. Like, how many of these are there there's in the country? Massive number of pharmacies. There's more pharmacies than McDonald's and Starbucks and all of these things put together. It's like, and even on the long tail, there's 65,000 there's tens of thousands. Yeah. yeah. There's a, I mean, there's a pharmacy, you know, really within a, a five minute drive of like 90 plus percent of Americans. It's like yeah. really, like if you just walk, you're, we're in New York City. If you just walk down the street on the same block, it's you'll everywhere. find a CVS, a Walgreens, a Dwayne Reed, etc. And so we're over. I like to say we're overboxed in yeah. pharmacies. And so, um, you know, Blink supports. I think a lot of the um, amazing pharmacies that are more um, regional, local, and uh, and grocer pharmacies as well with these with this um, white label loyalty product that they have. But they also help um, match better. Um, branded medications with the right patients and help the help doctors prescribe them better because there's a lot of I'm sure you've had this experience you get prescribed a drug you need to go through this whole prior auth process of your insurer has to sign off on these things I actually think the re- the real like problem with that process of of prior auth and how your insurance company and the PBM work to manage your formulary the drugs you're allowed to fill using your insurance is that you actually have actuaries so finance people making decisions about healthcare about how, which is it's kind of crazy in it's some crazy ways, yeah. it's, it's crazy if you were to explain this to aliens they'd be like wait what happens why are the actuaries ex- trying to determine what medicines you're allowed Correct. to take. And they have to on some level because you have to afford it all, but you probably should be doing that in a more data-driven way around the yeah. eff- efficacy and other issues. hundred percent. So you're helping with loyalty programs. You're helping automatically approve yes. people. Yes, almost automatically. Yeah, approve. With blanks, so it's faster. Using but, technology instead of fax machines, which is literally how prior auth is still done. Fax machines and human beings. And it's getting people the best price available versus mm-hmm. the... A lot of times PPMs have huge markups. Huge like things markup. cost... 
like three, four times as much sometimes, right? Correct. With some well, of these. Even more, thousands of times more. So the you thousands know, the, of times more. There's yes. there's examples of like a, a generic equivalent that's medicine. That's free for you that you that because it's on your because you're on your thing, you might have paid a thousand dollars or it's that's crazy. Pharmaceuticals are the only or really the only product that like if you and you and me and like um are a homeless person were to all walk into the same pharmacy with the same prescription from the same doctor would all pay a different price for your, you, let's say you have like the best insurance, your gold plated health insurance, you pay $10. I have like slightly less good health insurance. I pay $30. He pays a thousand dollars for the same drug. This is like going to McDonald's to, to get a Big Mac and we each have a different cost. Correct. And that's how it works right now. Correct. And, and so, yeah. and, and the worst part is that person who's likely to pay a higher price is definitely lower income, right? Um, because of how the dynamics of insurance. This is how the work. mission you got into in the first place is helping yes. people save money, helping people negotiate. So, so the blink mission. Democratizing access is like really the is really the mission. That's cool. How do you democratize access so to this necessity? Industry, you're helping figure out the incentive of different players. Correct. Getting people better deals. Yeah, and I also think um, one of the I'll just like add one thought, which is one of the most I think interesting things about following data. In, in particular in healthcare is looking at where the profit pools are, right? So in particularly in, in healthcare, I think if you asked anybody, they would never get these numbers right. And I try it all the time. Like, what do you think um, percentage wise revenue pharma is in revenue in healthcare? Most people would, you know, not realize it's about 13%. But profits Profits are higher than that. Yeah. Do you know the number? It's it's probably close to half. It's half. Exactly. It's 40, it's like 49, 50%. Exactly. And so that's wild to be 13%. It's a a higher margin business though. Yes, exactly. And so, yeah, I think it's, I just, I'm always like shocked by that number and also how many people get it wrong that are really brilliant people. Well, they're supposedly they're working in the industry and they don't really know how it works. Yeah. Well, doctors never know. It's my favorite thing to ask doctors. They have, they have, they have no idea they what, what, what the money is. They also yeah. think all the drugs are made in America. Always doctors think drugs are made. In, I always, I love to quiz. Them. I was with, um, uh, an amazing, uh, OB last night looking at his company and I asked him where he thought drugs were made. Cause I had been, I've been like recently stocking up on generics that I think are going to be hard to get. And, um, he was like, well, why everything, everything's made here. American drugs are made here because of the FDA. And I'm like, wrong. It's like, a fraction of drugs are made here, actually. We actually do regulate other places like in totally. India, too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I want to ask you on that, just for our listeners. You're a little worried some drugs may be harder to get. Yeah. What, what are a few that you're stocking up on just in case? Not that we want to so, cause yeah. a run on, yeah, on no, these. Don't cause a run on them. We're actually seeing this, actually. So um, the pediatric cylinders um, are already uh, harder to find right now. Um, but they're they're also hard to keep because they're a, it's a it's a liquid drug. Right? They, so they get bad in two then, weeks. Yeah. Right? Or but two weeks. Well, you probably can't stock up on this. Yeah, you get the powder. It, it, then you could then you could save it, but I just I like to keep on hand since the start of COVID big gun antibiotics. So like your top six drugs that are like could be just life-saving. in case you have some antibiotics and yeah. other things. Actually, we do that as well. Yeah. I don't talk about it usually in public because people think it's weird. But yeah, it's, we- it's you know, weird because but, but you're like you know so you get into don't trust the supply chain fully yes, with no, everything going on. We know a lot about the supply chain at HPC these days. <laughs> so yes, you can definitely not trust. It. You funny. can't even get a couch right now. <laughs> That's funny you're doing that too. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about another business. It's very different. We move yeah. on from PBMs, yeah. which is, and, and I want to start with PBMs so people could see all the sophisticated things we work on. <laughs> There's different levels of, I guess, complexity and sophistication on the consumer side. Yeah. 
I I do not understand this world. You obviously do understand this world quite mm-hmm. well. Uh, you were the first big investor in Hell House Home, which yes. is the is, I guess they're most famous for their nap dresses. Yes, they are. And I'm wearing if you can I don't know if the camera can see it, but I I'm can. wearing my Hill House dress today. Um, fun fact, and I loved I love this fact because I think if you're going to invest in consumer, you have to really be a consumer of these things too. Um, long before we were their investor, I was their number one customer, so I really saw the value prop. I've been their running number one customer for a very long time. I was recently told, um, and so it's a it's a really so buy all of their stuff every single thing, every single thing. The best part was when we were doing diligence um, on the Series A. So Nell had um, Nell, the CEO of Hill House Home and, and founder of Hill House Home, has twins. I have twins. They're about eight weeks apart. Hers are in October and mine are born on New Year's Eve. And we did the Series A between um, her <laughs> her twins and my twins. So it was Whoa, really... Whoa, she led the round between her twins being yes. born and your twins being born. Her, her term she got to her... So you two women are, are crazy people. Crazy people. I was like <laughs> trying to give her time and then I realized that my twins were going to come sooner than we thought. So and you had to, so you yeah, had to get a term sheet out. We got her the term sheet. I was on the way to the hospital on December 30th and then the boys came the next day. And how much has it grown as a company since since due to that investment? Yeah, so this is, ama- this is amazing actually. When we got to know... Nell and the Hill House home brand early on, it was a home brand. So there were, there was no apparel at this time. And then, and we, we watched the business, um, growing and just from the sidelines, uh, we stayed friends. We would catch up once a quarter, get a coffee and she'd tell me about the business. And then I started seeing this interesting phenomenon. She made a pajama dress called the nap dress. It's the, it's the shape I'm wearing now. It's called the Ellie in a white cotton, basically see-through cotton, right? It's like a nap. It's a, na- a nightgown at this yeah. time. Um, and we start seeing this dress at brunch at on the streets of New York walking around. And I'm like, it's very interesting. People wearing their pajamas outside and people start wearing this thing as a dress. She releases it, uh, a season later in a, a more opaque fabric in a tartan. Still everyone's favorite nap dress, um, even today. And we, and then we start seeing the numbers go absolutely wild. And so I call Nell and I'm like, I think it's time for us to give you money. <laughs> and so she actually was not any of the times we, that she raised capital. She was actually not raising capital. It, they were times that because we were, you know, in the business with her or because we, you know, we were, we were getting information from her, you know, from a friendly perspective and, and just kind of lending an ear and some expertise. Um, that we said, actually, it's time for you to do this. It's time for you to do the seed. It's time for you to do the series A. It's time for you to do the series B. And so the business has grown enormously. So at that point, it was a, a home business. The clothing part of the business was tiny because it was just, it was really one shape of nightgown at the time. Then she re- does the second release in Tartan. We see it spike. She, you know, she basically sold out. And I think it was at the time 18 minutes or something. They did these like that. drops. This drops. is a thing that yeah. maybe some men know about this. Yes. Like, no, because you're invested in it because my wife buys from it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. These drops come and they sell like, like how many dresses will they sell in, in a drop? Yeah. Like, so it drops like when there's like a chance to buy like yes. uh, like so a know. new release. So a lot of like a lot of men who probably listen to the show know about things like Supreme that ju- that do a drop right. So they drop once a week, um, but then they do bigger bigger lines every now and then as well. Um, Hill House drops last year six times, um, but going this year is going to be four. So we're going to actually tighten fewer up the drops. Times, huh? Yes, we're actually going to create fewer. Actually, there will be fewer more products ones. offered, but fewer bigger drops so that people. What we find is the customer really wants to like plan around her wardrobe around these drops. And so we're basically tightening them up to help her plan that way. But how long do you have to order when it drops? Minutes. And so this, this is, is the crazy. most amazing thing. You'll have, we'll have 30,000 nap dress customers. We call them the nap queens, um, in the nap room, which is like, 
almost a QVC style selling component to what Nell does. So she's on, um, you know, she's on screen styling and talking about each item, showing how she's going to wear it, showing how it fits for half an hour. And it's the most wonderful place because you've got this really supportive, obsessed customer base. Um, one of the, um, like one of the publications, I forget which called it the, the cult of the nap dress because it really is a, they went around interviewing these girls and they have like my closet, I think probably has upwards of 50 of these dresses. But are, but even a like regular customer has at least six, right? So they have tons of this same dress in all different prints or different cuts, right? And so they they get really obsessed with this product. And so you basically have um, somewhere between one minute and half an hour, depending on the popularity of the popularity, product. You just got to order it right away right and they'll away. sell tens of thousands of tens them. Tens of thousands. Yeah. I mean, it just like, how did you do this? Cause I do, cause I do merchandising drops for American optimists. <laughs> like, like, like how does, how does this work? You probably could. You, I, I wouldn't put it past yeah, That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. It would be pretty it's cool. just like really cool stuff that everyone like, yeah. that likes. You know, actually I think what it is, is she's so core to her customer base, right? She's like, it's really, about, it's about now. It's about, yeah, it's about her. It's about, you know, it's about an accessible luxury. I think she's exactly at the right price point with a product that is easy fit, right? These dresses um, have no zipper. We call them easy waist dresses. Um, they are machine washable. Even I'm wearing lace. I throw it in the washing machine and hang dry it. It's amazing. And the price point's amazing, right? So like this dress, $175, a collector's item dress, the regular dress, $150. And so it's an amazing price product. So I think it's the right product for the, at the right price point for the right customer. And you're going to do over a hundred million revenue. And you can't say, I guess. Yeah, she won't. I don't think she'll let me, I don't think she'll let me for releasing. That's totally fine. You want people thinking about the design, not the money. That's, that's totally fair, but it's amazing. So you, you obviously have an eye for consumer. You've done some great consumer investment instead of grew 100x after you did them. Uh, and you decided to build your own company and consumer. I yes, I did. And it's yes. called, and so we have a build program and, yeah. and I think you studied this space for a long time. We said, Oh, we can pay $30 million to buy a few percent of yeah. one of our favorite technical skincare companies. Actually, let's use the money instead and let's, let's build, build something better. Yeah. So this is actually, I think, I think the fig one beauty story is actually a great example of how our build program works. Um, and also why I think it's such an amazing ABC, such an amazing platform to be on if you're an entrepreneur and an investor, right? So I think we were looking, I'm obsessed with skincare. I've always been obsessed with skincare. And since I'm like 11 years old, basically my mom gave me my first Clinique yellow cream, which you don't know what it is, but every woman listening definitely knows what it is. Um, and she, you know, that really like sparked like spun me off on like a whole lifetime of being a skincare enthusiast. And then as I started getting older, um, I started looking at all of the anti-aging and active skincare products, whether it was lights and lasers, um, injectables or topicals. And I really think for me, a lot of the way I like to, you know, treat my skin and try to keep it younger, glowy or longer is through topicals. And so we started studying the space. And so I went out looking for an investment, like you said, we looked at uh, over a hundred companies in the space and found actually something that I found so I found it's like so horrible as a skincare consumer is like a lot of snake oil. Honestly, there's a lot, a lot of people out there they're making money by tricking consumers. Marketing. Exactly, marketing. just yeah. marketing, saying that this is gonna uh, this is gonna fix your fine lines and wrinkles, and then when you drill down into the ingredients, they're actually not potent enough to do anything. Really, well, this is this skin. is interesting because you are really good at marketing and all the tricks to marketing. 
but you don't want to market something that's not substantive. Correct. I would never market something that I couldn't actually stand behind. And I, you know, I really feel like that as I feel like as an investor, as a builder and, and, you know, especially obviously as a consumer, but it's a form of integrity basically is it's not, you're not going to give your life to something that you don't really believe in. Correct. And I also just in general believe consumers are, consumers are incredibly smart. A lot of companies, I think, treat consumers like they're, like they're not, like they're dumb, but actually consumers are wildly intelligent and they're really good at finding the best thing naturally. It's why you see so, like someone, you know, so many things grow organically, um, to become really successful companies. It takes longer, but these consumers are very good at telling each other when something really works. So, and so, being so, so it sounds like you're bullish on, on our democracy, huh? You think, you think yeah. people can figure things out eventually? I do. I think they can figure it. I'm, I'm in general optimistic. We're on mm. American optimist, everybody. Um, but I, so I'm in general optimistic, but I also just, I, I really believe in the intelligence of the consumer and the consumers becoming smarter and smarter, especially in this area. So you, so you, so you brought on people from Stanford, Harvard, and Harvard, Penn, Penn mm-hmm. and these are dermatologists, yeah. your experts. And like what it, I remember it took you a while to like get the right supply chain and yeah. ingredients. Like what, what, what did that take? And what, what did you find out? Yeah. So we went through this process of seeing uh, over a hundred companies to get to the point where we decided we couldn't write a check. We, I was like, I can't stand behind literally any of this. And then we decided to build, we decided to build this company. So then along the, the way of meeting all of those companies, I also met all the top experts, the head of Harvard, Durham, Stanford, Durham, Penn, Durham, amazing chemists. And I brought all those people together and I said, I gave them the thesis that Bella Becerra, who works on our team, and I wrote um, about technical skincare, what ingredients matter in anti-aging and acne and sun care, et cetera. And I said, if I were to, if you were to put together a full-fledged collection of anti-aging products, what does it look like? With no, I gave them, um, I made no demands about costs. I didn't say, oh, it's a luxury brand or it's accessible or whatever. I said, what does it look like percentage-wise in, in active ingredients and such? The um, Dr. Courtney Rubin, who at the time was practicing at Harvard, and Lizzie Trellstad, our head of chemistry out of Columbia, came together and they they brought us a list of products. It was eight products. That was the eight launch products. We wrote every single one of those ingredient lists on our own and created all of those products on our own. That's I say that, and almost everybody I think probably is going, yeah, of course, doesn't everybody just create their own skincare products? It's actually not how products get created. Most of them have someone else do their back end and they just market it. Correct. They just, just go to they go to a co-manufacturer who makes all the skincare products. They take something off a shelf. You put your own label on it and you put it well, out. Celebrities always want to launch their own things. So they just go to someone. They're not going to do all the work you did with Stanford and Harvard. Yes. They just want to put their name on something. Exactly. And the thing yeah. that they also don't do, which we do, is clinical testing. So we go through full-blown clinical testing on all of our products. And I make the point about price that I didn't get give them any direction on the price point of the product because most people don't realize it actually doesn't matter. The juice that's in the that's in the bottle it's not that expensive. is not that expensive. And so products that you're spending a hundred, two, three, twelve hundred dollars on are there twelve hundred dollar products out correct. there? La Mer has twelve hundred dollar skincare products. They're actually more than more than one company that have them. And they're not really what are they any... putting in there? Is this like celebrities like hair or something? Like <laughs> yeah. what are they doing? You, you wish. We actually do see some really weird ingredients in skincare <laughs> these days. There's like placenta products. Oh, come yeah, on. I That's know. gross. But actually, like one, like a big thing in skincare right now is, um, oh my God, it's like um, colostrum. 
It's they they're using bovine colostrum in skincare, oh, which if you on. have babies, you know is is what comes before breast milk, oh, basically bonding fluid. And so I'm like, how are you guys getting this stuff? And so anyway, I don't actually want <laughs> actually don't want to know. But the you know it's really interesting to when you, when I started understanding the dynamics about cost in these products, I'm like. Oh, we can create the best in class products that I, that I'm currently at that time spending hundreds of dollars a bottle for my 12 step skincare routine. So I'm spending thousands of dollars on skincare. You're thousands of dollars. You can take all the very best in class ingredients and you can put them in something that and you're selling it. it you, it's a very, very high end product, but it's inexpensive enough that you're selling it at, it's at 14 at, to 40 bucks. And you're selling it at like Walmart. Yes. Yeah. We're on walmart.com. We're launching 3000 CVS stores in March. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We shouldn't, so we exciting. shouldn't maybe. We shouldn't talk about their PBM stuff. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I think it's probably a different team. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Nobody be mad at me. Um, but I think they're actually, actually think CVS doing a lot to change the way that um, America is experiencing healthcare. So I think I've, even though they're, I like they're challenges, they're positive sides. I think it ultimately, well. yeah, they're a positive. And they're able force. to innovate by having something close yes, to there. And they've also, they're really creating, a, I think a new team to build out those, what's possible. Well, keep um, saying good things about them. If they're selling yeah, 3000 stores, Kimmy, well, so that's least this is business. <laughs> but also I think it's like why CVS, why Walmart, like you could easily sell these, these are high price. These are, these products are people high, around, high quality. Around the world, other countries trying to sell your stuff too. That's yeah, really so, cool. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to, be a global we'll be a global brand next year we'll we'll launch in australia we'll launch in the uk and you're and you're and it's just kind of interesting because just like nell sells her brand i guess this brand is partially about you you people seem to respond to 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 you yourself yeah it's actually very funny because we went through all of these processes to like work with celebrity influencers whatever and then we're on a marketing call and our marketing team is like yeah there's this but there's this girl who's talking about your product in this in this instagram post is performing 10x better than these other celebrity instagram posts and and, and I'm like, what girl are they talking about? And they pull the ad. I'm like, this is me. That's me. And I think it's really funny because I think it's about authenticity and marketing. And people, this is what I mean about consumers. They're really good at picking out bullshit. And they're, and so I think it's really easy for them to see, oh, this is not really believable. And this is actually really authentic. Mm -hmm. And when obviously I'm obsessed with this brand and product and really put our, with this team and we put our heart and soul into building the products and I try and test everything. Like I work on every single no, so, product. So it's, it's, it's just more, it's just more real when yeah, you do it. And you said people could tell. And, and just so, you know, why is it viable for founders in general to have an engaged AVC partner on build? Like what, what is, what is that process or what does that look like? Yeah. So I think it's, I actually think it's an amazing process because once we have this like belief system and thesis built around, around an area, I would, I would argue that there are not better experts than in that space once we like really dig in with our, with our team. And so I think you, we're seeing it from a different place than like the found, like a founder in the, in the trenches actually, and able to experience all of these different companies, all this, a whole industry. Yeah. A lot of the frameworks from experts. doing this a lot of times yeah. seem to get reused a lot. Yes. And... Yes, exactly. And so I think being in, you know, being in the trenches with the founder that way, with the other co-founders in the business that way is highly valuable. So you've seen, you've seen, you've coached and mentored a lot of founders. Are there, is there any certain counsel you tend to give more often to first time founders? I mean, there's so many things but like yeah. what, what stands out as a common mistakes you want to help them avoid? Yeah, actually I, it's so funny because I, I wonder what you'll think of this because I, it's, I think it's probably like a little bit anti VC maybe, but the, one of the things that, you know, founders want, they're like, a bit want to understand like a formula. And I'm like, this is not a Michael Bay movie. Like y- your idea and you know, 
is actually what's really important here. And then how we execute is really important, but you can't just, it's not formulaic, right? Yeah, like every got, single time. You got to kind of iterate. I agree. There's gaps in the world. There's lots of smart people. Yes. And then there's like frameworks, but you kind of, you're iterating you, all the time. Exactly. And I think, so I do, I think what is the same is that you have to understand, you have to understand, you collect, understand, and then use all the data that you have. Right. And so I think being a fast learner, being a fast learner and being able to quickly adjust and, and pivot, um, as the world is changing around you, because we're, none of us are on solid ground, right? We thought every, we thought we knew everything until two years ago yeah, and you're constantly and adjusting happened. and every, right. everything is different. Everything and, all, is different. and now all of a sudden you have changed totally how you're yeah. selling. So, so I mean, how, how do you think about talent and building a culture that attracts, retains top talent? Cause it's that talent that's doing the iterating and figuring it out. hundred percent. So, I think people really want to work on some uh, meaningful problems. And so I think you have to find talent that's interested in the problem you're solving, not just the solution or the company that you're building, but actually the problem itself. And, and if they're in love with that, then you'll get a you'll get a team that's really passionate and, and powerful together. I think a lot of people go to companies for the wrong reasons. It's like, oh, this is like the sexy thing right now, so I want to work on it, but they don't really care about the problem. And so I think if you can solve for that and just and look for people who, you know, really share that obsession, then you'll Built a really amazing team. Awesome. Yeah. So, can we, we start the American Optimist to push back against the cynicism and pessimism sweeping across the country? What are the best reasons to be optimistic about the future of America? It's such, I feel like this is such a good question because I really, in a lot of ways, feel like a really, like a good example of somebody living the American dream, right? My, um, my mom came here as a child from Italy. My, you know, all of my, you know, grandparents that are all born in Italy. Um, and you know, with, with very little and I'm here, you know, helping you shape the future, investing in the best technology companies. Well, hopefully I think. we're helping you yeah, but together. We're doing it together. And I think that's, um, I think that's amazing. And so I, you know, I hear, and we hear this all the time. People love saying how they're going to move to Canada or something right now, especially the younger generation, right? They're like, you know, obsessed with that. Oh, the world is like everything's yeah, broken. Yeah, what you tell these young people? There's a lot of people who, you know, young people who think the world's broken and just, you know, basically think business is evil and then business is just to take advantage of people yeah. and, and the whole world's greedy and horrible. Like, what would you tell these people? Yeah, I say, you see a lot of things that are broken. I see a lot of things that you can fix. And so I think when, you know, I'm talking to young people, I'm like, listen, all of these problems that you see, it's, you know, there's never been a better time to solve them than now, right? You get to deploy all of the last like 30, 40 years of technologies that, that exist and call upon those and, and build with the, whatever technologies are possible today that were not possible in that time. So you get to leverage all of this information that you have and all of these things coupled with everything that's new, focus on the modern problems that we have to fix those things. And so, and that's your responsibility. And so when, when people are complaining about how everything is broken and you can't fix it, it's actually an I hear, opportunity. Yeah. I hear laziness. I hear laziness. And so I'm like, step up and, step and get up. it done and start it's, fixing it. Exactly. That's, well, that's, that's a great note to end it on. Kimmy, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you so much. So fun. 